Well, this afternoon we'll be returning to our uh, study of the book of Hebrews. We're going to be in cha- uh, continuing on in uh, part three of how Jesus is the greater sacrifice. In part three of this section, and we'll be in particular of, in chapter nine, verses uh, 23 through the end of the chapter. Uh, for the sake of context, let's go ahead and read the entirety of chapter nine. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared. The first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. Having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. In which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. <clears throat> But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For, for there is a will involved. The death of the one who made it established must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. <clears throat> Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. In the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Thus, it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better things than these. 
For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood, not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let us pray. Father, we have just heard your most holy word. And in so doing, we have heard from you. And we thank you that you have given this to us, your revelation. And we pray, our Father, you would help us to receive it as such and to believe it. And as we enter into thinking about this text and what it is saying and how it is applied to us, we pray, our Father, that you would keep us chained chained to the text of your word. And we pray that your spirit would guide us and that your spirit would minister the truth of your word to our minds and our hearts, to our entire beings, that our faith might be increased and strengthened. We ask, O Father, that you would do in each of us according to your will. And guide the preacher. Would you chain him to the text of your word that he might freely declare truth and do so with, clear, with clarity, with accuracy, with understanding. And these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we've been looking through the book of Hebrews, we've been seeing that Jesus truly is the better than. We can sum up Hebrews in a number of different phrases. We could say, praise God, no more sacrifices. We could also say it's declaring Jesus is the better than. For we've seen throughout the book of Hebrews, Jesus is the final and best revelation of God. Jesus is that Jesus is better than the angels, that he's better than Moses, that he's the better that he's better than the priesthood and the greater high priest. And now we've been seeing that he is the better sacrifice. One thing that was established in the last section on the priesthood is that the priesthood was insufficient because the priesthood was filled with sinners who could not function in such a way as to present sacrifices that could provide eternal redemption and perfection from sins. It could not purify the conscience. And in that way, the law was useless, it says. It was useless to that end. Not that the law is not good, but the law was never designed to function in that way in the economy of grace. And we saw that that was the entire weakness of the old covenant, the Mosaic covenant, which was given as a restatement of that great command given in the garden, which we fail to do of do this and live. And if you do these things, you will live. And we didn't do that, so we don't live. We die and we suffer 
eternal condemnation. The Mosaic Covenant testifies of that for life in the land. Do this and live to stay in the land. And again, it showed the insufficiency of the law to be able to do that. It shows our sinfulness. And one thing we looked at last week in this section, if we read the Old Covenant, the, the scriptures of the Old Covenant, of the I should say the Old Testament, which is not just Old Covenant, but if we read the Hebrew scriptures, we can see on a number of occasions that there is a lot of blood. There's a lot of bloodshedding, a lot of sacrifice. There is a lot of presenting of blood. And we see that that is because it, is, it testifies that it is only by death that sin can be atoned. It is only by death that sin can be dealt with. It's not so much the blood itself as it is what the blood tells us. If we were to happen upon a, a scene where there are police around, and we see that there's a lot of blood on the ground, what, we would, what would we assume happened? That somebody probably died. And the blood speaks of death. And we've seen now that Jesus' death atoned for our sin, that by His death, by His mediation, by the sacrifice that He presented, He presented a better sacrifice because His sacrifice deals with that which is eternal and that which, is, <clears throat> that which disconnects us from God. He reconnects us from God and purifies our consciences. And now we have a continuation of these thoughts in verses 23 and following. This section is broken up into a few different ideas stemming from the first part in verse 23, in which we see that there's a better, a better purity for a better temple. And then we see... In verse 24, that there's a better representative. And then we see in verses 25 through the first part of 28, there's a better sacrifice that is more that has a better effectiveness. And then in the last part of verse 28, the, this better sacrifice provides for a better hope. And so we're going to be dealing with each one of those. We see, first of all, in verse 23, it says, thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. Remember, when we were in previous sections of this chapter, we saw significant language about uh, the tabernacle, which also the temple was patterned after. But we saw that in the temple there was the inner room and then inside the inner room there was the holy place or the holy of holies and once every year the high priest would enter into the holy of holies and make an offering of blood for his sin and for the sins of the people and the temple functioned in the same way before israel settled in jerusalem they had the tabernacle which whenever they up and move somewhere, they would pack it up and they would reset up when they moved to another location. And when they settled in, after having settled in Jerusalem as the seat, if you will, of, the, uh, of, of Israel, 
David desired to build a permanent tabernacle, a temple. He went to the Lord and asked, can we do, ask to do this? And while he didn't get to do it, he did it. And when we read the accounts of the temple, both the first temple and the second temple, in particular after Herod's renovations, that they were well known for their beauty and their grandeur. When we read of the requirements for the temple, the way it was to be built, there's a lot of gold, there's a lot of intricate carvings, there's a lot of intricate things, and there's a lot of detail. They were well known for their beauty, their grandeur. John Chrysostom, and a church father from the 400s, he said, God who ordained it commanded that it should be made with great magnificence because they also were more attracted and urged on by material things. For it had bricks of gold in the walls, and anyone who wishes may learn this in the second book of Kings and in Ezekiel. And how many talents of gold were then expended? The temple was a grand thing. For the temple, in, or, in order for it to be fit for the purposes for which it was designed, that is to testify of the coming sacrifice of Christ, it needed to be purified. It needed ritual purification. For while it had been ordained by God and constructed according to a divine template, it was still made by sinful human hands with elements from a creation that had been fallen and that had themselves been tainted by sin and death because the vice regent of creation fell. We sometimes get the idea that when Adam fell, only Adam and his descendants were affected. The entirety of creation was affected by the fall. For the things of this world, those living things, are subject to death due to the fall of man. For the things of this world, those things not living, are subject to decay, to destruction, to erosion, to wearing away due to our rebellion against God. We often like to say that things were created to work a certain way, and that is true. But such a statement also doesn't take into account the fact that the vice regent fell and all creation with it. Things don't work the way they're supposed to because we fell in the garden. And so, even, all, even, even though it was built in accordance with the divine template, because uh, they were, it was built by sinful human hands from elements and material that was subject to the fallenness, it could, the temple could not bring about eternal purification from that sin. Because even with those purifying rituals, because the blood was not just poured out on behalf of the people, the blood was also sprinkled on the various different things in the temple to purify those things. But it could only make provision for temporal life in the land. For it served a greater purpose. It served as a type and shadow, which I know that's a difficult concept at times, but we can think of it this way, as a metaphor. As a metaphor, if we know what a metaphor is, of something greater to come. We can see that even 
in that, in the temporal provision for life in the land. There is a limit to what the temple and the whole sacrificial system's effectiveness is able to do. For remember, we just read a few minutes ago when we read the text that the sacrificial system only made provision for unintentional sin. There was no provision whatsoever for intentional and willful sin. Thus David, when he committed what he did, he had no sacrifice in which he could offer. He had to simply appeal to mercy. And yet there was still death that had to happen. There was still, there was no getting out of that judgment. Listen to what Jeremiah chapter 7 verses 1 through 7 says to us about the fact that the temple, even in the, that had, had those kind of limitations. Remember, the Mosaic Covenant was do this and live. It was conditional. It says, The word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord, Stand in the gate of the Lord's house and proclaim there this word and say, Hear the word of the Lord, all you men of Judah who enter these gates to worship the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Amend your ways and your deeds, and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. For if you truly amend your ways and your deeds, if you truly execute justice with one another, if you do not oppress the sojourner, the fatherless, or the widow, or shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not go after other gods to your own harm, then I will let you dwell in this place. In the land that I gave of old to your fathers forever. Behold, you trust in deceptive words to to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called my my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations. For even the sacrificial system was not sufficient for such willful sin. We learned last week and other times when we talked about that willful sin, Jesus' death atoned for all those sins. If you think of any sins you commit, you think, yeah, that was kind of willful. I I didn't just kind kind, kind of casually just trip into that. But we see now that there's a greater sacrifice with regards to a greater sin for a greater temple is necessary for eternal life in Christ in order to gain entrance into into the Jerusalem above for which we wait. A greater sacrifice is necessary in order to gain entrance into the Jerusalem above because we know that we have no lasting city here. We must remember there is a greater sacrifice necessary one that you and i could not begin to qualify to offer because like those priests we 
are sinners. So what was the purpose of the, when we think of the tabernacle and the temple, what do we think of it? Well, we just mentioned that we have provision for sacrifice. That it testified of a sacrifice that's to come. When we think of the Holy of Holies, what was it that dwelt in the Holy of Holies, the place where when Jesus died, that curtain was torn in two from top to bottom? There was the Ark of the Covenant. What does the Ark of the Covenant testify to? Inside that Holy of Holies, it is the represents God's dwelling place on earth. For the temple testified to this, this is God's dwelling among you. That is why one who entered into the Holy of Holies had to offer a sacrifice on behalf of himself and behalf of the others. And if that priest did not, uh, did not come out, the sacrifice had not been accepted. Because that was God's presence. We cannot stand in the presence of God in and of ourselves if we are tainted with sin. But let's keep that in mind that the dwelling, that the temple, te- the temple speaks of the dwelling place of God. And we'll keep that in mind as we consider the next statement here in verse 23. The copies of the heavenly things needed to be purified. The tabernacle, the temple, the various things in the inner place, in the Holy of Holies, they were but copies. We could also take this word that is translated copy, and we can understand it as sketches or outlines. That is, they testify of a greater reality. For example, if one writes a paper, oftentimes it begins as an outline. And there's all sorts of different ways people outline. But it begins with some sort of a big picture. This is the way it's going to go. But is that the actual paper? No, it's a shadow of the paper. It's a plan for the paper, a sketch of the paper. And so the temple was a sketch of greater things to come. They testified of something better. And this better reality needs a greater, greater and better sacrifice than the blood of bulls and goats to provide eternal forgiveness for all sin, including those willful, intentional sins. For not only the priest who offers the blood of bulls and goats himself sinful and beset with weakness and thus couldn't offer such a sacrifice the blood of bulls and goats are not sufficient for while they were to be spotless and without blemish there is no truly perfect goat or bull or lamb on the face of this earth that has ever existed for they're still tainted with the sinfulness of the fall So why would this heavenly temple? But then we ask the question and we see in verse 23. But the heavenly things themselves needed purification with better sacrifices than these. I added the needs purification uh, because it's uh, 
parallel statement. The copies of the heavenly things, it was necessary for them to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. It's implied that uh, the same idea, there was purification that was needed. Why would the heavenly temple need purification if it were created and made by God's hand? Is there something lacking in it? Now, if we're talking about heaven itself or the throne room of God, then no. There is nothing lacking or impure that does... uh, There is nothing lacking or impure and it does not need a sacrifice to cleanse it. So then what is this temple that needs purification? Why does the real thing need cleansing? Well, remember, this real thing being the temple is indeed the dwelling place of God and the temple of God. And we hear that and we assume it's a place. But it's not a place. The copy testifies of a greater reality, the dwelling place of God. You see, the real thing is the people of God, the dwelling place of God, for God dwells in his people. Are we not called collectively? Is not not the people of God called a holy temple of the Lord in Ephesians 2, verse 22? Are we not called collectively the temple of the Lord in 1 Corinthians 3, verse 16? There are some ways in which the dialect of English with which I'm familiar is superior to the dialect that is uh, spoken um, in other parts of the country, including here. And that, uh, that dialect of English has a very easy way of identifying one of you and more than one of you. In that dialect of English, we use the word y'all. And so it says, do you not know that y'all are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in y'all? Or I guess we could say you guys. But there we see the plural. That collectively, the people of God collectively are the dwelling place of God. We are that temple. And are we not individually indwelt by the Holy Spirit? And thus each of our bodies not called a temple of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 19 where he says you in your, your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. And so what is it that needs purification? We need that purification in order for God to dwell with us, in order for us to be in God's presence. It is us who needs that purification, this temple, this dwelling place of God, the people of God. So to atone for sin, to make a new creation fit for God to dwell eternally, to make a new heavenly city, it required a superior offering of a superior sacrifice. You see, for us to be in such a right relationship with God, such that we dwell in Him and He dwells with us, it requires a far better and superior sacrifice. One such as we've been talking about, 
a better sacrifice of one who is greater than the angels, who is greater than Moses, who is the greater high priest, and who is himself a greater sacrifice. Is not Jesus called in the text from which we read earlier in the service, Emmanuel? And what does Emmanuel Emmanuel mean but God with us? Emmanuel. Im is the with, Anu is we or us, and El is God. God with us. Do we not see the hope elaborated for us in Revelation as the dwelling place of God, the temple as being with man, as God being with man in Revelation 21, verses 1 through 4? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. You hear what the city of New Jerusalem is called? It's called the bride. Who's the bride? The church of Jesus Christ. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall, be there, neither shall be there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And in order for that to occur, the temple, the dwelling place of God, must be made fit in which for God to dwell. It must be made fit. And there is no sacrifice that you and I or that even we together can offer that can make us fit. There is no sacrifice that all the priests and pastors of the world together could offer that could make the people fit. Only one. And that sacrifice comes from the one who is the final revelation of God. You see, the blood of Christ makes us acceptable to God and makes our presence and praise more acceptable than that of the angels. R. Kent Hughes says, No angel can call God his Father. To address God as Abba Father is the believer's privilege alone. No angel was ever purchased by the blood of God's Son either, but we were. We are that purified dwelling place of God. And he now dwells within us. There's a greater dwelling that's coming in which we shall see there shall be no more tears and no more crying. As that old spiritual says, no more crying there. We are going to see the king. And all of this is because, first of all, there's a better representative. Verse 24, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. So now we see the basis of this is because of the very nature of the sacrifice which Christ made is that he entered 
into the very presence of God on our behalf such that we could be that dwelling place. So we see how this one who is, who is the greater than is the sacrifice that is better and fit for eternal purposes. He did not but enter into a human dwelling place made with hands to provide a hope that is fundamentally earthly. A hope that is built around our best life now. But rather a hope that while we have a taste of what's coming is something that lies in the future that we possess now but in a way that is not fully seen. The great, he, the one who is the greater sacrifice, made a sacrifice that is, is of eternal value and worth. For he entered into the presence of God himself as, our, as the final Adam, as our better representative, not just a faint outline or sketch of it, but the real thing. And thus he stands in our place before God. He is our representative. It is by his righteous life, which we read earlier in the book of Hebrews, by which he was heard, that the high priests could not be heard on account of their own reverence. They had to present the sacrifice. But Jesus was heard on account of his own reverence. And so he was heard on our behalf and by his atoning death. And he's accomplished this. In verse chapter 7, verse 25, we also saw, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for us, for them. That by his life and by his death, he is perpetually and eternally for that once for all act interceding for us. He's not representing his sacrifice, but by that act, it is a sufficient intercession now and forever. For he stands before the Father and in him we stand. And this is an intercession and representation that never fails and that is perfect. For when our sins come against us and the accusations rise, arise, we have Jesus, the one who entered God's presence on our behalf. And you see, this flies in the face of our resting heart rate. Our resting heart rate is one of wanting to represent ourselves and to do it ourselves. Our resting heart rate says, I can't trust somebody else to represent me because only I can represent myself. And when we say that to God, it's as if God would say, yeah, good luck with that. Some of us, including myself, don't like to be the passenger in a car or a passenger in a plane because I don't trust someone else to do it for me. But alas, we have one who does not fail. Our resting heart rate, we want to say, along with that famous song, I did it my way. 
and I have talked to many a believer over the years who are struggling to grow because they are weighed down in the guilt of their own sinfulness. They are reluctant to go to God for help. They are reluctant to partake of the means of grace. They fail to see this truth. Jesus entered heaven before the presence of God on our behalf. The failure to see this glorious truth is to hamper our sanctification. In fact, the failure to see this truth creates an unhealthy introspection. Introspection means looking inside. That prevents us from actually loving our neighbor. So brother or sister in Christ, look to Jesus who entered into heaven on our behalf to stand before us on the behalf of God. Even in Paul's treatment of the outworking of our sanctification in Romans 6 and how we're dead to sin and must not present ourselves as slaves to sin is rooted in this. Sin is no longer standing against us because Jesus intercedes for us. It's rooted in that truth. Romans chapter 8, verses 33 and 34, we see this truth expounded on. This is my own expanded translation. Who is able to bring a charge against God's elect? God is, but he justified us. Who is the one condemning? Jesus Christ is, but he's the one who died much more the one who rose, who is also at the right hand of God, who is interceding on our behalf. You see, the one who can condemn condemn us, Jesus Christ, is the very basis of our right standing before God. You see, by his death and resurrection, he is eternally interceding for us. It can be truly be said, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The very idea of looking to another is the height of foolishness. And in the name of in the main in the name of saving Christianity over the centuries, people have forfeited Christianity. Whether it's because the miracles of Jesus couldn't be accepted, so you have to. You have to rationalize those or the miracles of the Old Testament can't be accepted. So they have to be rationalized away. The Red Sea, for example, one one would say the Red Sea wasn't actually parted. It was this called the Reed Sea. And it was just a strong wind that blew the waters back and they were able to cross over then. Or a man whose name I love to pronounce but whose writings I would never recommend uh, a man by the name of Friedrich Schleiermacher. Fred Schleiermacher. Frederick Schleiermacher. In the late 1700s, he said in our scientific worldview, resurrections and all these things are unacceptable, but Christianity must maintain its influence. And so we have to alter the message. We have to remove the myth from Christianity and just have the kernel, that of a good moral life. And a man who inspire a man who could inspire people to live moral lives of service to other people and service to God. 
but away with that language of atonement. Justification by faith, apart from our works, is always coming under our fire, coming under fire, and sometimes our own fire. But my brothers and sisters, the idea of selling our eternal birthright of infinite value for the farthing or penny, actually a quarter of a penny, for the farthing of false assuaging of a guilty conscience or of worldly influence or of having a seat at the table of kings or some misguided notion of cultural redemption is of all things the height of folly. We are so drawn to what we can see and feel and touch and taste and smell. We need to have something we can hold on to and say, you see, I have this, so I'm sure now. Or we can say, I signed that card 30 years ago, so I'm okay. Back in the 1500s, when Martin Luther was around, and that's still practiced, but in, in the Roman Catholic Church, there was a practice of selling indulgences. Now, what is an indulgence? An indulgence was the practice of, uh, <clears throat> on, on authority of the Pope, a bishop or a priest, usually a bishop, would offer, usually for a price, a piece of paper that would grant release from purgatory or exemption from purgatory for the person who, for an alive person. A little piece of paper that by the authority of the Pope, this person's sins are taken care of. And by this paper, they can say, this is our wrath that gets us into eternal paradise. There was a statement that went around that said, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. You can turn on the the so-called Christian TV network and sometimes hear language similar, can't we? Martin Luther would be approached by parishioners who were wanting to buy or who had bought the indulgences and say, look what I did. I have this. I'm okay now, aren't I? And Martin Luther told them that those indulgences were worthless pieces of paper, that they should save their money to feed their children and care for their neighbors that they needed to put their trust in God's love demonstrated to us in Christ Jesus. The trust in one whom they could not see. And that's hard. But that is what we have before us. And then the third thing that we see, another reason for this purification that has occurred is the fact that we have a better sacrifice that has a better effectiveness. Nor It says, starting in verse 25, Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. And then we'll read the second half in a moment. 
but he appeared once to offer himself for the sins of many. So now we see this, why the sacrifice, this entering into heaven on our behalf, is a such great value. His work is, 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 one, is completed once and it is done. You see, the gospel is never due. It is done. I think it was about 20 years ago, there were bracelets that were being sold that you could buy. And I think you still probably get them. It's a big movement. It was called WWJD. What would Jesus do? And that's and it was defined. Preach the uh, share the gospel with a bracelet. What would Jesus do? And of course, that didn't sit right with me. But I'd only been a Christian for about five years at the time, and I couldn't really put together my discomfort with it. But I can say this now: that had nothing to do with the gospel. That was all pure law. And even then, the whole "What would Jesus do?" is is based on a book called In His Steps, which is rooted largely in a gospelless understanding of the Scripture. Rooted in simply Jesus as an inspiration, but not necessarily an atoning sacrifice. But no, the gospel is not what, what would Jesus do. The gospel is this, what did Jesus do? What did he do? And we see here what he did is of such value and worth that it must not and cannot be repeated. He entered once and once alone on our behalf into the presence of God with his sacrifice. Remember, over and over, we've heard under the Mosaic priesthood, the high priest every year had to enter into the Holy of Holies to make a sacrifice for both his sin and the sins of his people. And it only accounted for unintentional sins. And it was only of worth for life in the land. But that did say this. Sacrifice is necessary for the forgiveness of sins. But there must be a right sacrifice. A good enough sacrifice. His sacrifice we see is sufficient. And needed no repeating. For if it needed repeating, he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundations of the world. Listen to the words of the synods of Dort. The synods of Dort are a statement. You may have heard of the five points of Calvinism. I prefer to say the five points that come from Calvinism because there's far more to Calvinism than those five points. But that's what outlined those, those points, the fact that we are totally depraved and unable to redeem ourselves and are not able to will so in and of ourselves, that God chooses a people from before the foundations of the world and that he die, He sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for those people and that when he calls those people to himself, he changes their hearts such that they re- believe the gospel and that those whom he has called to himself, he preserves and ultimately perseveres. But hear the words of the Synod of Dort. The death of Christ is the only and entirely complete sacrifice for sins. It is of infinite value and worth. Were the whole world elect, it would be sufficient to atone for the whole world. It is of infinite value and worth, fully accomplishing that for which it set out to do. How many times do we accomplish to set out to do something? 
and we don't accomplish it. Or, some of you know I like doing woodwork, and I will set out to accomplish something. And people will see some of the pieces, oh, that's so pretty, and all I see is the things I didn't do right. But Jesus accomplished it perfectly. You see, there's no bringing back that which has been nailed to the cross. His intercession for us is effective because his death for us was effective. Jesus didn't just make the removal of sin for us a possibility when he died. He didn't just make it a potential. But he secured for those who are, who, who are his own eternal salvation. He secured it on the cross. He didn't just make it a possibility. This should be of great comfort to the believer. He did this in his life, in his death, in his resurrection. And because of this, there is no need to present any more sacrifices for sin. There's no need that when we sin, and we do sin, there's no need for when we sin to say, okay, I'll say 10 of these prayers and I'll do 15 of these exercises. For to attempt to do so would be to impugn the dignity and sufficiency of this glorious sacrifice. What we read in Romans 8, 33 and 34 is true because of this. He accomplished what he set out to do and did so effectively once and for all. It is erroneous to think that we can reenact or constantly represent his sacrifice for our sins. The idea that the sacrifice of Christ needs to be represented over and over and over again through an erroneous understanding of, say, the Lord's Supper, that it is re-sacrificing Christ, impugns the sacrifice of Christ. Tibetan Buddhism, which is an entirely different brand of Buddhism for the rest of Buddhism. I've been to Tibet. It's very different. But for one sin, and the concept of sin is multifold in Buddhism, but for one sin, the Tibetan Buddhist, if they want to incline Yama, the king of hell, to forgive them of that sin, so he won't put the petitioner through yet another cycle of reincarnation, or that their passing from one life to the next would be not so difficult. It's a very weird thinking system. They're required to do 100,000 prostrations. I have video on my computer, if you wish to see it, of uh, people doing the prostrations over and over and over and over again. That's the thing is, is we oftentimes do that ourselves just in different ways. We like to look at them and say, Lord, I thank you that I'm not like them. Realizing we are just like that. We must keep before us this truth. The very idea of going back to the old sacrificial system is unfathomable, unfathomable to the book of Hebrews. 
One commentator tells the story of a rural doctor who upon his death, his, his books were examined. There were several entries that had uh, entries in terms of the billings that the people had to pay, in which the doctor had written forgiven across those entries in red ink. So after his death, his survivors didn't think that was right and that those debts should be paid and settled. So they took those, they took those people who still, according uh, who they thought, thought still owed money to court. The judge asked those survivors, is this the doctor's handwriting? They said, well, yes, it is his handwriting. The judge then said, then not a court in the land can touch those whom he has forgiven. So it is with our sin. Not even will God will judge us for our sin as it's already been adjudicated in Christ once and for all. He will not pour out his wrath upon us for our sin. In Colossians 2.15, we see that it's been nailed to the cross. Jesus' death is likened to the reality of judgment in this text as well. As it says, for, uh, just as it is appointed, man, appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Man is appointed once to die, then to face judgment. There's no reincarnations, there's no do-overs. There's no, there's no, um, there's no second chances, so to speak. This happened once. But also hear what it is saying. Just as it is appointed once for man to die, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, so he once offered himself for our sins. And we cannot improve upon that. Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. In his death, he faced the judgment on our behalf. There is no more facing the judgment of our sins. There is no condemnation. If Christ is ours, we are his. And when we think of the blood of Christ, just as a little aside, the blood of Christ should not be used as some sort of incantation. That we say, by the blood of Christ, like that's kind of an incantation, a formula of sorts. No, the power in the blood isn't that it's some sort of magical blood. This idea has given rise to grand and ridiculous myths about the grail into which the blood was spilt, also known as the Holy Grail. No, it is his death that the blood points to. Because he died, we shall live, body and soul. Those outside of that shall suffer eternal hell, body and soul. Because we shall live body and soul because he once and for all presented that sacrifice. And we also see that this better sacrifice produces a better hope. The second half of verse 28. He will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Christ has been offered once for all to bear the sins of many. And just as it is appointed for man to die once and judge, so be judged, so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of money, and he will appear a second time. 
and he is going to save those who are waiting for him. You see, his death, his sacrifice secures for us a better and superior hope. He's coming back again, but not with regards to dealing with sin. He's not coming to sacrifice himself again. He's rather coming to rescue those who are waiting for him. So he's coming back as a better hope for us because of his better sacrifice. When the ritual day of atonement occurred, when the priest entered with that great basin of blood, there was great relief when he emerged because it meant his sacrifice was accepted. One of the writings of the Apocrypha, the Apocrypha are uh, books that um, appear in some versions of the Bible, but really are not, they're not, we don't consider them canon. They don't consider them part of the inspired canon. Books usually deal with history during the 400 years between, um, between Malachi and Matthew. You've heard of, might have heard of the book of Maccabees. But they're, they're, they give us value, valuable insight into the history. But there are things in those that contradict the rest of the canon. So they, can't be part, they shouldn't be part of the canon. But in the wisdom of Sirach, chapter 50, verses 1 through 10, it says this, Simon the high priest, the son of Onias, who repaired the house in his life and strengthened the temple in his days, and the two-story height was laid by him as a foundation the high fortified wall of the temple's enclosure. In his days, the cistern of water was brought down, copper like the perimeter of the sea, the one who considered his people from downfall and strengthened the city for besieging. How he was honored in the parade of people at the exit of the curtain from the house, like the morning star in the middle of a cloud, like the full moon in the days, like the sun shining forth upon the temple of the Most High, and like a rainbow shining in clouds of glory like a blossom of roses and days of new things, like a lily of outlets of water, like a shoot of Lebanon in the days of summer, like fire and frankincense upon the censer, like an object of beaten gold decorated with every costly stone, like olive trees sprouting fruit and like a cypress rising in the clouds. Do you hear how they regarded the high priest when he exited the curtains, when he came out of the holy place? Why was there such rejoicing? Because it meant his sacrifice had been accepted. And he had come forth. And our Lord Jesus Christ entered the heavenly sanctuary, as we read, to appear for us in God's presence. And because we have this assurance, he's coming back a second time. And because his spirit dwells in us as a down payment of that which is coming. We know this. His sacrifice was accepted on our behalf. He told us himself he's coming back for us. But he's not coming back to atone for sin. He's coming back to bring to completion and bring to full fruition our salvation from our sin. We will never be more justified than we are now. But we, will, we shall certainly have less practice of no practice of sin like we practice sin now. We shall have no indwelling sinfulness or remaining sinfulness. He is our king and priest. We read from Revelation 21 earlier. 
that we are a heavenly and holy temple and shall one day be the beautifully glorious new Jerusalem in all its glory. We shall dwell with God and us with God, that he shall be our light and no other lights will be there. And so for this we wait. And let us be those who eagerly wait with anticipation that which is coming for us. Let that be for us comfort in life and death, that body and soul we belong to our Lord Jesus Christ because of his once for all work on our behalf and that he is coming back for us. Because he accomplished for us what we could not do for ourselves. So in closing, brothers and sisters, let us not lose sight of this glorious truth. Let not the death of Christ be a stumbling block to us. That is our hope. Let us not minimize or negate this because it may be an unpopular idea. Always there are people wanting to rework the death of Christ to make it less offensive to the world. Always. We happen to live, we we live in a certain moment in time and we see things going on and we say, oh, this has never happened before. It's always happening, brothers and sisters. We must always be on guard for that. Let us not reimagine the death of Christ as some sort of unfortunate death, nor use the death of Christ as some way of using it, using that as a using it as a way to score points. But rather, let us remember it, remember it for what it is: that His death, once for all, secured for us what we could not begin to do. It testifies to this. Soli Deo Gloria, to God alone, the glory. So let us remember what we sang earlier in the service. There is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins, and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day, and there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. And for, and for the one who does not know this great truth, who does not believe this great truth, who has not entered into Christ, I urge you, believe the gospel and receive from him the forgiveness of sins and life eternal and be counted righteous before God. Let us pray. We pray, our Father, that you would do your good work in us continually. We thank you that Jesus died for us and rose from the dead for us. Help us that we might rejoice in that glorious and wonderful truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.